Divine Providence. What's up? Today is Thursday, April 15th, 2021, usually known as Form 1040 Day. Welcome to episode number 143 of the Bornhardt Podcast. This is Mark Doherty, along with Anne and Dr. Matza. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. Hey, Dr. Matza. Hey, Anne. So uh, today actually isn't Form 1040 Day in the U.S. this year because, like everything else, nothing's normal and uh, it's going to be May 17th or possibly June 15th. We don't we don't really know right now. Or never, if you're me. <laughs> I was I was debating you uh, that whole time. I, it took so long for you to speak up. Uh, I, I was I was I was choosing my words carefully, but then it <laughs> decided to just throw caution to the wind and just say what everyone was thinking. So, <laughs> so we're uh, we're sure to discuss the current events. Certainly, lots of go going on uh, as there as there always seems to be these days. But in particular, some additional insight from Dr. Matza into the mind of Benedict through the the through his own words, really. And uh, going more towards the the sacred powers of Pope Emeritus and uh, various other things that have been uncovered here since our in the I don't know month and a half since our last Maza cast. So, Doctor, would you want to kick us off? Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, I my contribution to the last uh, podcast, I think, was um, my contention that uh, you don't have to be a canon lawyer to understand substantial error. Um, I argued uh, in a piece that uh, you guys also posted um, that uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's nothing business, it's strictly personal. I argued that uh, um, we're dealing with natural law um, and it's, uh, you know, that's why it's included in canon law. It's not strictly a canon law thing. Uh, basically, when we say that Pope Benedict, uh, when we argue that he did substantial error, and that's why his resignation was invalid, and that's why he's still Pope, what we're really saying is that he did not uh, do an action freely, because in order to do something freely, uh, you have to know what you're doing. You have to have the right uh, uh, objective truth in your mind. Anyway, um, so... My contribution to today's podcast is trying to explore what did he have in his mind? What does he understand regarding the papacy? And so I've come up with a with the part two I promised called uh, Leave the Throne, Take the Ministry. Yeah, of course, all these Maza articles have Godfather themed titles. It just it goes with the territory, right? Da, 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 uh, da, 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 da. Yes, yes. You know, you know, a couple of, to go to get, to get sidetracked right away. Let me just briefly state: you remember a couple of years ago, uh, one of uh, uh, Bergoglio's crowd called Ed Penton 
uh, a mafioso. Yes, Remember that? which is one of the funniest <laughs> things in the world for anyone who's what? ever met Ed, seen Ed on TV. <laughs> um, yeah. Th- this person so I, I... is the diametrical opposite of an Italian mafioso. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> but yes, so, yeah, go ahead. But that same, that same month, I actually interviewed uh, Ed on my Bar of History show. And uh, I started off one of the segments by saying, you know, I, I never wanted this for you, Ed. I knew one, I knew one day, you know, Marco Tosati and uh, Sandro, Sandro Magister, but uh, I never wanted this for you. I never wanted you to be a, never wanted you to be a badass. <laughs> anyway, so who, who's that, who's Sunny? Who's Santino in all of this? Is my because yeah, well, he, we need to get I him think, a uh, Marco Tosati is, uh, is is Sunny. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fredo, Fredo, you know, Ma- Sandro Magister. <laughs> this wasn't enough time. This wasn't enough time, man. Yeah, but I've given everybody the giggles. Uh, <laughs> Yes, let's now talk about who the vicar of Christ on earth is. While we're all laughing uncontrollably. I'm terrible. See, you people who are not enrolled in Dr. Motz's classes, it's like this every night. So it's your loss, folks. It's your loss. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Except he doesn't usually crack himself up. Yeah, that's right. He usually, he usually holds it that's together. That's true. <laughs> oh. Right. oh, goodness gracious. So who's the poet, right, Dr. So. Moss? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you watch Godfather 3, the Pope was involved. I know, um, if you don't watch Godfather 3, <laughs> no, that's heresy right there. See, I mean, right. <laughs> but go ahead. All right, so leave the, leave the throne, uh, take the ministry. Um what how exactly does pope benedict understand the papacy and really what we're going to talk about is munis and ministerium but we're going to talk about some stuff that nobody has brought up before uh regarding that those words and um basically with the knowledge that i now am armed with um basically i can debate anybody on this topic and the next person who tries to say well you know they mean the same thing munis and ministerium like you said, Anne, basically they picked up a Cassell's Latin dictionary mm-hmm. and, and saw that there were multiple, you know, meanings and said, oh, they mean the same thing. Uh, no. No, um, no, they yeah. don't. So, no. <laughs> any, yeah, anybody who does that is now, you know, lowering the IQ of, of the Western Hemisphere here. <laughs> um, so this is, this, is, this is the deal here. Um, in the church, there is sacred power, okay? And traditionally... That potestas sacra of the clergy, right, of the ordained, uh, has been divided into two categories, which indicate two separate origins of that one power. And the first one is the power of order, in Latin potestas ordinus, and the second one is the power of jurisdiction, potestas jurisdictionis. Um, now, the power of order is received at priestly ordination, and it gives power to a man to offer the holy sacrifice of the mass and the other sacraments. And what it does is it, 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 the person receives an uh, indelible 
character, a sacramental character that changes them forever. Like scripture says, thou art uh, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, right? Um, and, and so it's because Christ does this that the church cannot undo it. Now, the other, the second aspect of sacred power is the power of jurisdiction. And the distinction between the two is crystal clear in the canon law of 1917, which lasted until 1983. And even in the 1983 code, it's, it's, fairly, it's fairly clear there also, though not as clear. What kind of changed things was the, the, the years leading up to Vatican II and then Vatican II itself. Basically, the way the power of uh, jurisdiction has been understood traditionally is that it's, um, it's like authority to govern, which the Vicar of Christ grants to, let's say, bishops an office in order to govern specific dioceses. So this is a brief introduction. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. Yep. Okay. Now, here's the deal. Um, Vatican II actually says that, and this is true before Vatican II, in order to licitly exercise the power of order, uh, which the man got from ordination, he must first be in communion with the Pope and the bishops. Uh, Vatican II says, without hierarchical communion, the this is important, this is an important phrase, everybody pay attention, Quote, without hierarchical communion, the sacramental, ontological munis, which ought to be distinguished from the canonical, juridical aspect, cannot be exercised. Now, let's grant that, yeah, you do have to be part of the Pope and bishops under their authority in order to exercise this power, but I'm more interested in the buried lead here. And the buried lead is that Vatican II is saying that when you get ordained, there is a sacramental ontological munis that you get, which is distinct from the uh, power of jurisdiction, which is the ca you know canonical juridical aspect of um, of your sacred power. Now, what's the importance of this? Um, the importance of this is that. Benedict, right, in his Declaratio of 2013, uh, no one disputes this. In his Latin language, makes a distinction between the, uh, the munis and the, uh, the Petrine munis and the ministry or the ministerium of the Bishop of Rome. So um, we need to focus in on munis, and this is the first time we're seeing it here in the quote I just gave you from Vatican II. Are we still pretty clear here? Yes, sir. So there's right. an office, there's an office, there's a munis that is conferred ontologically at sacramental ordination at whatever level it is. And that is distinct. Well, the, mm -hmm. go, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, let's, we have to be very careful with the wording here. I'm actually glad you brought this up. We, you know, all of us BIP people, have been focusing on the word munis and using it interchangeably with the word office. And there is grounds for doing that. But actually, 
Um, all right, I'll, 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 I'll summarize this and then I'll get back to my original train of thought. Here's the deal. The very first person, as far as I can re research here, the very first person to come out and point out that Benedict did not renounce the munis, he only renounced the ministry, the active ministry, was uh, Stefano Violi, uh, who's uh, a professor, um, I think he's Professor Emeritus, forgive the expression, uh, at, uh, in, uh, in Bologna uh, at a faculty there, theology faculty. And um, he, he published an article the very month that Benedict made his declaratio, February 2013. I found the article online. We can probably put it in, in the show notes, the, the English translation of it. And he's the first guy, and you know he's 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 not an idiot. He's he's got letters behind it. Well, that, that doesn't actually make you not an idiot if you have letters behind your name. Let me take that back. But anyway, uh, he uh, he's you know he's a scholar, and he comes out and he says, um, yeah, he only resigned the active ministry. He didn't actually renounce the munis. Uh, now he doesn't make a negative judgment on that, and he doesn't say that Benedict is therefore in substantial error. But that was the first uh, clue that anybody had. And then, of course, subsequently, uh, Father Gruner and Barnhart, you know, Mark Doherty, Ed Matza, and other people have come on board and, and, and jumped on this. So, um, but the thing of it is this, last, not last year, 2019, right, so after I wrote my latest article, um, which we're going to post over the weekend, in anniversary of Pope Benedict's uh, birthday, tomorrow and uh the anniversary of his papacy on monday the 19th um what i found out after i wrote my article is that violi two years ago wrote an article almost on the same topic and so i've i've read that over the last couple of days and I've, i'm trying to sink my teeth into it but mark to answer what you just brought up violi makes a distinction now between munis office and ministry <laughs> just to confuse everybody uh, I mean you know I'm joking but um, so at some point in our talk today uh, we should go through the distinction between the three um, I'm not sure if now is the right time to do that but I'll, I'll follow your lead uh, we'll leave it to you yeah <laughs> well let me let me chug on with my article and then I'll try to insert uh, Violi where appropriate how's that sound Sure. All right. So, um, all right. So, what I what I came across, which unhumbly uh, uh, I will say, Violi has yet to come across, or didn't actually put it in his article, is I have an actual quote from um, Joseph Ratzinger from his 1987 book Principle Principles of Catholic Theology, um, where he, in this paragraph, uh, he is referring to the fact that in 1947, Pope Pius XII issued a new document on the right of ordination, okay? And Benedict is really thrilled with the language that Pope Pius XII uses um, because Pius XII changed the language that was used previously, you know, in medieval times and up until the 20th century. Um, and and, and then Vatican II is going to build on what Pius XII said. So let me just read the quote from uh, uh, Pope Benedict in 1987. The right that Pius XII decrees 
represents a return to the form used in the early church. It is pneumatologically oriented. Now that, for those that don't know what pneumatologically means, uh, the, the pneuma refers to the spirit, to the Holy Spirit. Um, it is pneumatologically oriented in terms of both gesture, the imposition of hands, and in word. Now, because Pius XII changed the preface. And so the preface now is a petition for the Holy Spirit. And then Ratzinger finishes the, his thought by saying, accordingly, the key word in the preface is now ministerium or munis, service and gift. Um, so here we have another data point to try to figure out what does Joseph Ratzinger think about the papacy. Well, first we've got to figure out what does he mean by munis and ministerium. Um, so um, where do we go from here? Well, it's also important to bring up that Ganswein, in his May 2016 address, said almost the same thing. He said the key word, not in Pius XII's statement, but the key word in Benedict's Declaratio is munis petronum. And, and Ganswein, right, who's Benedict's personal secretary, says that munis in Latin has a multiplicity of meanings. It can mean um, service, duty, guide, or gift, even prodigy. Uh, before and after his resignation, Benedict understood and understands his task as a participation in such a Petrine munis. He has left the papal throne, and yet, with the step made on February 11, 2013, he has not at all abandoned this ministry. Um, so, uh, you, basically, Ganswein is confirming Stefano Violi's observation, and then everybody else since him, that Benedict did not renounce the munis petronum. Uh, he only renounced the active ministry uh, of the Bishop of Rome. And now it remains for us to unpack this further. But did you guys have anything you want to say first? I mean, that's just that that is the money. The I don't know if there's another one, but that is certainly one of the money quotes from the Ganswine yeah. speech at the Greg that really just how can anyone look at that and say, well, that's not really what he meant. Yeah, I mean, it's that and the whole notion that. Pope Benedict's attempted putative resignation was totally like everyone else's, except for the fact that it's so unique that it can be analogized to the Immaculate Conception. I mean, I think the, the whole speech is just a is just bomb after bomb after bomb. But those those two parts, I think, are are the 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 H bombs in the whole thing. Yeah. Now, Ganswein was roundly uh, criticized by Catholic experts for his uh, explanation here, which Benedict XVI completely authorized. It's not like he just went out there and said these things without Benedict's uh, approval. But anyway, one of the people that you know, took issue with him was uh, our, our favorite uh, Dr. Roberto Di Mattei, um, who now and again seems to be off on some things. <laughs> um, but... I'll, I'll give you the gist of what he was upset with. Um, basically, um, he he said that um, 
Pope Emeritus, in the word Pope Emeritus, the word Pope outshines Emeritus, okay, which implies that Benedict is still Pope even after his abdication. And so how is that possible? Well, uh, for Dimatei, the only explanation is that Benedict uh, thinks that the pontifical election has imparted an indelible character, which he does not lose with his resignation. Um, and so the abdication would presuppose, in this case, the cessation of the exercise of power, but not the disappearance of the pontifical character. This indelible character attributed to the Pope could be explained in its turn only by an ecclesiological vision that would subordinate the juridical dimension of the pontificate to the sacramental. So let me stop here and explain. Um, this is what I was talking about earlier. There is a distinction between the uh, potestas ordinus, by which you are ordained a priest or a bishop, and the potestas jurisdictionis, by which you fulfill an office in the church, and one day you may not have that office. That office can be taken away from you. Um, so uh, somehow, the uh, if we're understanding that Benedict is still pope, even though he's given up the active ministry, Dimatei is saying this is only possible to his mind if Benedict thinks he has an indelible character on his soul when he became pope that he cannot get rid of. And he, he goes on to say, it is possible that Benedict XVI shares this position presented by Violi in 2013, but the fact that uh, he may have made the notion of the sacramental nature of the papacy his own does not mean that it's true. And, and basically, um, Dimitei drops the hammer and says, there does not exist, except in the imagination of some theologians, a spiritual or sacramental papacy distinct from the juridical one. Okay? If the Pope is, by definition, the one who governs the church, well, in resigning governance, he resigns from the papacy. And he concludes by saying the papacy is not a spiritual or a sacramental condition, but an office or indeed an institution. Um, now, in my essay, I, I respond by saying that Benedict is diametrically opposed to what Dimatei just said. And the example I want to bring up, and then you guys can comment on this because it, it kind of, it's, it's kind of important here, is going back to that text from 1947 by Pope Pius XII. And this is um, Joseph Ratzinger's 1987 uh, comment on that. And what he says is, he says that the medieval text for ordination uh, saw ordination as resulting from the conferral of power, which that's something that Benedict doesn't like. He doesn't like those, uh, that terminology. And he goes on to say, the medieval rite is formed on the pattern of investiture in a secular office. Its key word is potestas, power. But now, he says, the key word is ministerium or munis, service and gift. And then he comes out with a bombshell. He says, according to Ratzinger, the most crucial event in the development of the Latin West was, I think, the increasing distinction between sacrament, 
potestas ordinis, and jurisdiction, potestas jurisdictionis, between liturgy and administration as such. And then he says something which is hard to understand, but we can try and, and tease it out. He says, um, I think we should be honest enough to admit the temptation of mammon in the history of the church and to recognize that to, to what extent it was a real power that worked to the distortion and corruption of both church and theology, even to their inmost core, the separation of office of, as jurisdiction from office as right was continued for reasons of prestige and financial benefits. So we got to ask ourselves here, did, did Benedict just condemn the church's theology of potestas jurisdictionis? Did, did he just characterize her understanding of the power of governance through office as something distorted and corrupt to the core? I don't, you guys want to? <laughs> wow, if only someone would like write a doctoral dissertation outlining the entire 20th century history of the German Theological Academy's basic contempt for the papacy and the need to demythologize it and spin it off into a collegial, synodal, shared ministry so that we could, you know, get the Lutherans and the Anglicans back on board. If only someone would have written a doctoral dissertation on that. Oh, wait, somebody did. J. Michael Miller. Oh, we're going to have to put that in the show notes. I'm writing it down. We're going to link again to the Miller dissertation where this is all laid out in a 300-page text going on and on and on, mostly Germans. Um, the, the American that stands out in all of this is um, Avery Cardinal Dulles, who was, wait for it, the brother of the ex-head of the CIA and also a, what was he, a Jesuit, a convert, a Jesuit, and was he even a priest? Or was he just? He, he was, was a, a priest, but not a. He was a priest, but not a, a bishop. Priest, but not a bishop. Yeah. So um, that's the lone. That's pretty much the most prominent um, non-German voice in the Miller dissertation, and the one of the foremost voices in all of this, going on and on and on about what what a problem the papacy is. In fact, wait a minute, I've got it right here. It, it's the opening um, teaser quote in chapter eight of the Miller dissertation. Let me pull it up here. I've got it right in front of me. Dun, 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 dun with the bookmark. Here it is. Chapter 8, Contemporary Catholic Views on Papal Primacy. Uh, the present crisis of the papacy is one of legitimation. Who said it? Walter Casper. Walter Casper, who became the head of the St. Gallen Mafia on uh, 31 August 2012 upon the death of Cardinal Martini of Milan, Casper then becomes the head of the St. Gallen Mafia, and at exactly the same time, Pope Benedict, um, according to his own testimony, in the fall, in the late summer fall of 2012, Pope Benedict makes the decision um, that 
he is going to attempt to cutesy pie resign. And he's also going to do this in such a way guaranteeing that Casper, who is about to turn 80, would would not turn 80 yet and would be able to go in and essentially run the fake conclave. Um, it, it just, it drips of coercion. It absolutely drips of coercion. So, uh, in the, in the book length version of, um, the, uh, the doctoral dissertation with added, uh, added, this didn't come come along until the eighties. Uh, the fact that it's here at all is sort of amazing because, you know, who would want to print such a thing? Uh, thesis 14 on page 375 in order to fulfill its specific mission the and again, this is kind of a, a summation of all of the, the, theological comings and goings around the papacy, especially the Germans back in the 60s and 70s. In order to fulfill its specific mission, the Petrine ministry has assumed many different forms in the past and will continue to do so in the future. Hmm. And uh, I can give you guys a quote uh, from from the horse's mouth here. Uh, This is this is going to shock viewers, so this is a, a you know a, a warning here. Uh, I have a quote here from um, Papa Benedetto back when he was Joseph Ratzinger, and he's talking about how back in 1964, Pope Paul VI met in Jerusalem with the Patriarch of Constantinople, right from the Orthodox Church, Patriarch Athenagoras, and when and when Athenagoras greeted him, Athenagoras said. Against all expectation, the Bishop of Rome is among us, the first among us in honor, he who presides in love. Now, the patriarch was quoting uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch, the great martyr of the uh, early second century. Um, Now, Benedict, commenting on this in 1987, says, it is clear that in saying this, the patriarch did not abandon the claims of the Eastern churches or acknowledge the primacy of the West. Rather, he stated plainly what the East understood as the order, the rank, and title of the equal bishops in the church. And now I'm about to drop the H-bomb here. (laughs) Ratzinger says... It would be worth our while to consider whether this archaic confession, the, right, the first among us who, in honor, who presides in love, uh, whether this archaic confession, which has nothing to do with the primacy of jurisdiction, but confesses a primacy of honor and love, agape in the Greek, right? Uh, it would be worth our while to consider whether this might not be recognized as a formula that adequately reflects the position Rome occupies in the church. Holy courage requires that prudence be combined with audacity. The kingdom of God suffers violence, unquote. Well... That helps make a lot of other things uh, fall into place and make sense in terms of some other things he said in turn, like as far as jurisdiction, 
versus mm-hmm. a primacy of honor when he says to uh, Bishop Fillet, my, my authority ends at that door. Yep, exactly. That's what I was just thinking. The My authority ends at that door quote. Yep. So, I mean, the way I characterize it, um, he's basically sidestepping. It's not like he, ha- he doesn't actually come out and, you know, argue against the de fide definition of Vatican I that's, that's categorically states that, you know, the Pope does have the power of jurisdiction over, you know, everybody on the planet, basically, you know, is, especially the Eastern Rite churches, despite their denial of it, you know, the Orthodox churches and the Oriental Orthodox churches. Um, but uh, the thing here is that Ratzinger, um, he's got this issue with the potestas jurisdictionis, right? Um Perhaps the best way of, of putting this is is the way that a scholar I've just come across put it. His name is Monsignor Frederick Hansen. And he says that, as it turns out, there are two schools of thought with regard to potestas ordinus, the power of orders versus potestas jurisdictionis, the power of jurisdiction. Um, and basically, Hansen says this, quote, the first current of thought emanates from, and, he, and then he lists all these Nouvelle theologians, uh, Karl Rahner, Joseph Ratzinger, Yves Kangyar. Um, they all support the view that sacred power comes from the sacrament of orders. In, in the case of the sacred power of the bishop, they advocate its complete origin in episcopal consecration. In other words, the power of order when they get ordained. Further, this position teaches that also the power of teaching and governance comes from Episcopal ordination, although its exercise must take place within hierarchical communion. Uh, As far as the power of jurisdiction is concerned, the juridical determination for teaching and governance renders this sacred power available for its exercise. So let me just boil this down in plain English. Traditionally, the church says when you get ordained, that's the power of order, and that makes you a priest forever or a bishop forever. Um, but it's the it's it's a separate power, the power of jurisdiction that the church grants you that gives you an office, and that office can be taken away. Uh, you know, your your jurisdictional powers can come and go, but apparently. Uh, Ratzinger and Rahner and Kangyar and all these guys from the Miller dissertation um, believe that all your stuff comes when you are ordained directly by God. I mean, not the, the church mediates it, but it's not something the church gives you. It's something that God gives you. And um, th- the problem is, is that how do you explain the primacy of jurisdiction of the Supreme Pontiff? This guy, Monsignor Hansen, says, um, according to this view that these Nouvelle theologians, and Ratzinger in particular, has, the primacy of jurisdiction of the Supreme Pontiff becomes difficult to explain with this line of thinking. Okay, because um, there's, there's a couple of things I could get into here, but is it like clear so far? Yeah, keep going. Okay, so, um, so the thing of it is this. Um, Traditionally, the, the papacy is understood 
as an office in the church that um, it, it, uh, it has to do with governance. And that would be the primacy of jurisdiction, not the, um, the power of, of order. Okay. Um, and so if you say that, that all the power of jurisdiction is given to you when you become a bishop, well, then what is Ratzinger trying to say? Is he trying to say that every priest who's ordained or every bishop who is ordained, when he's ordained, is given uh, some munis, which is later activated when he accepts the papal conclave election? Is that what he's trying to say? Because every bishop is equal in terms of their ordination. It's, it's the jurisdiction that raises the Pope above everybody else, according to traditional thinking. So if you're going to say, well, it's not the power of jurisdiction that makes you what you are, it's the power of ordination alone, well, then it becomes very difficult to explain the jurisdiction of the Pope. Am I making sense here, or am I just babbling? Yeah. No, it makes, it makes you're, you're making sense. He isn't. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's almost as if he's, um, in, he's in substantial error or something like that, you know, just, right. just pulling, <laughs> pu- pulling random words out of the sky as, as one does, you know. And can I just say that is the most irritating thing about De Matei is that on at least two occasions, including the one you brought up on this podcast and at least one other, he's staring it right in the face and he right. can't, right. can't see it. Yeah, it's um, – now, I, I suppose this might be a good opportunity to bring in um, – uh, well, let me just finish with Hansen. So now Hansen says that the, the main view in the church, even post-Vatican II, okay, the second current of thought makes a distinction between the Episcopal consecration, the power of order, on the one hand, and the um, – Missio Canonica, or the Potestas Jurisdictionis, on the other. Um, And this is traditional. The result is a position diametrically opposed to the first school of thought, holding that the power of governance comes from the, the power of jurisdiction by which an office is entrusted. It allows an explanation of the difference between the Pope and bishops as regards jurisdiction, okay? This uh, second line of thought is echoed in the canonical doctrine found in the 1983 Code of Canon Law, as well as in, you know, uh, papal statements that have been come out since then. Um, And so Hansen concludes, um, uh, it is therefore important to underline uh, He says, neither the Code of Canon Law of 1983, nor any of these other papal documents that have come out since then, speak of power as the first current of thought does, i.e. Ratzinger's current of thought. And he concludes, it is therefore important to underline that the distinction between the power of order and the power of jurisdiction was by the council or the code neither negated nor suppressed. It remains a part of canonical doctrine. So um, Hansen, it would seem, would agree with Di Mattei that, um, you know, Rahner and Ratzinger and Kangyar, they're kind of out there in left field with a hockey stick. 
And that's saying something in the post-conciliar church. <laughs> right. Right. So now, l- hmm. let me just, let me ask a question. Uh, it, I don't know how to phrase this, but does this have any, does this play into it all the notion of in, in terms of separating the, uh, the power of ordination from the power of uh, jurisdiction? Would that go to just with a priestly ordination that even though he possesses the power, he can't, he can't exercise it without having faculties conferred? Yeah, so traditionally, the way the church understands it is that at ordination, you're given the power of a priest or the power of a bishop, but it takes um, a grant by the church of jurisdictional power before you can licitly or legally exercise that power, right? And in the case of the pope, uh, a man cannot govern the Catholic church unless he is given the office from God uh, when he accepts the election of the cardinals, uh, then he's given ju- universal supreme jurisdiction over the church. But he, he receives it from Christ directly. This is really important. And this, this concept, this confusion is one of, is I think at, almost at the root of what the trading Francis is definitely Pope shut up stupid crowd keep trying to argue that that it's all totally contingent on the College of Cardinals the College of Cardinals you know elect the man the the office is bestowed upon the man by the Cardinals and if the Cardinals all agree then that's it and that is and that then the man has the office of the papacy as a dogmatic fact by virtue of the college of cardinals and this is this is totally completely 100% wrong and this this isn't debatable or anything else this is in total opposition to pastor Eternus, which is vatican 1 which says in in the clearest possible language that the the papacy is bestowed upon the man by Christ Jesus himself and there is no intermediary there it it does not pass from Christ to the pope through the college of cardinals it does not even pass through the church which is kind i mean it's kind of easy to see that yeah you would take the college of cardinals out of the and that would not be a middleman in terms of christ bestowing the office on a man it is a little bit of a of a mind blower a counterintuitive mind blower when you read pastor Eternus, and it specifically says that even the church is not an intermediary in in this process of the office being bestowed upon the successor of peter by christ himself and you know the whole the college of cardinals says he's the pope and nobody's spoken up about this therefore it is a dogmatic certitude um is completely 
totally 100% wrong. And we don't even have to go into the fact that these same exact people argue all day, every day on social media that Novosordoism is a different religion and that none of the college, none of the cardinals, presumably by virtue of that, because they're all, they're all Novosordo, even Cardinal Burke says the Novosordo mass, I think from time to time, I don't know if he does anymore, but I mean, he's, I mean, he said the Novus Ordo th- throughout his career. Um, and so Trad Inc. is simultaneously arguing that men who they hold are not even Catholic, who subscribe to a different religion and a completely different church, simultaneously have this completely fabricated uh, power over over Christ, over the church, over absolutely everyone, and whoever this merry band of sodomites that these guys all are now, apostate, Freemasonic sodomites, and a non-trivial number of them are active worshipers of Satan, that if these criminals all get together and say, uh, the Argentinian over there, he's the Pope, then that supersedes canon law, that supersedes natural law, that supersedes Pastor Eternus, that supersedes absolutely everything, and what they say goes. It's the most utterly, completely bizarre, um, diabolically disoriented, um, incomprehensible violation of the law of non-contradiction that I think I can, I've ever seen or can think of. It's just, it's completely bizarre. And that's... But John of St. Thomas was such a great theologian. (laughs) (laughs) I think John of St. Thomas was one of the ones who said that the the election has to be, the election has to be legal, you know? I mean, there's, uh, it's, it's... To say it's frustrating, but you know that we and should we should complain so- because we're 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 gaining ground. I mean, the Canon two twelve poll showed that that two and a half to one, trad Catholics today believe that Pope Benedict is the Pope. So I mean, you know, we also, just we um, just have to keep chiseling away at it. Go ahead. Right after Vatican, right after the Council of Trent, Pope Paul the fourth, and then um, Great Pope Saint Pius the fifth both issued documents saying that if if a heretic were pope he would lose the office despite universal acceptance um i can look up we can put the titles Hmm. for those encyclicals in the show notes uh, on the the websites that produce them in english translation uh but of course the the crowd like that you just described they would say oh well that was 500 years ago that doesn't count anymore well, yeah, clearly the whole thing has been wrong. Um, Vatican I was wrong. Paul, Paul IV or whoever it was that you said, they were all wrong. Um, and you see it. These people are now going all the way back, and now they're arguing that the entire uh, Latin church since since uh, the schism in you know roughly the year 1000, the whole thing's been off the rails since then. Nothing about the Roman rite is good. Everything's disordered. Nobody has any spirituality. Blah, 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 blah. Now we have to go back. We have to go all the way back. And pretty soon, I mean, I called it that they would start saying that even scripture is wrong. And, and it's been done. Tradink partisans have literally argued that because the holy gospels were written by prelates, 
which, you know, all the evangelists were, that they were biased. And of course, they cooked into the holy gospels a disordered um, view of the papacy and the Petrine, the Petrine office and the successors of Peter, literally arguing now, trad ink partisans are, that the gospels themselves and the evangelists cooked all of the papacy up and the whole thing has been wrong since the beginning. You knew that that's where this was going. You knew that that total apostasy is where this eventually led. Because really, you see it coming logically, because if the papacy is a lie and it's all wrong, then, then our Lord's promises are either, he either lied, he was mistaken, or he's not God, you see? And so you're just, how many, it doesn't even take two logical corollaries to get to complete apostasy. Bear in mind, this is all being argued by people who for all intents and purposes don't actually practice the Catholic faith. They don't go to mass, and this is before, this is before Corona scam. They publicly hate and confess hatred of, um, the most holy rosary of the blessed virgin mary the co-redemptrix and they're sitting here and it's just obvious where all this is going it's going it's going to apostasy that's the only place that it leads hmm. you know i had a comment when you, when you were talking about pastor turnus a minute ago uh the passage the particular pa- passage talking about the the papacy being bestowed by christ himself and not by the cardinals and not by the church you know, if you had read that in 2012, you would have passed by it thinking, whatever, like yep. that, you know, yeah. what, why, why even make that distinction? Well, huh, Ooh, here we are. And we boy, know. I mean, that, that is a providential distinction. That is a, uh, um, uh, you know, you could almost say inspired work there, but the second, but, um, uh, mm-hmm. go ahead. Uh, not to interrupt. I was just going to say it is a bit of a catch 22. So did you want to finish your thought or? Well, Vatican, uh, I think Vatican I was obviously the reason why the divine providence had that happen. Had Vatican I happen in the first place and the definition happen in the first place, even against all the massive direct political coercion being laid out by the Freemasons, they literally were giving them the ultimatum, if you define if you define papal infallibility, we will declare full-blown war on you. And, and that's exactly what they did. And yet, and yet the uh, Vatican I fathers did it anyway, knowing that they were bringing down all hell through the Freemasons on, on the church. Why did the divine providence have that happen at all? Why, why didn't they just let it lay? Because the divine providence knew that we were going to end up in this situation with anti-Pope Bergoglio, and we needed to have a document that laid this all out and said, this is dogma. This is dogma. You can look at the, the dogmatic declaration of Vatican I of Pope, papal infallibility, cross-check that against Jorge Mario Bergoglio, and you know you absolutely know as an article of faith that something 
is horrifically, horrifically wrong, and you need to be taking a look at what the hell happened when this character, Jorge Mario Bergoglio, started running around wearing a white cassock. And sure enough, what do you see? Well, the most spectacularly stupefying, unprecedented, bizarre thing in the 2,000-year history of the papacy happened. What, do, boy, do you think maybe we should take a look at that? You know, I mean, it's... And, and by the way, if, if the very reason that you began investigating why he might not be a true pope, if the very reason for that is because he's spewing heresy 24-7, so you start doing some research, that doesn't disqualify the evidence that you find. And some people are arguing that. Well, you're, you just don't like Francis because he's, he doesn't really seem to be Catholic, and that's why you started looking for answers and how Benedict might still be Pope. Well, guilty. So what? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a completely specious argument. I mean, yeah, and I think I would take it a step further and say that God in his mercy— clearly, clearly is withholding all of the graces and protections of the Petrine office from this arch-heresiarch Jorge Mario Bergoglio as, as a loving kindness to all of us so that we would know what's going on. And, you know, I mean, you say, well, if Cardinal Burke had been elected in the, in the conclave of March of 2013, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, you know what? Cardinal Burke wasn't elected in March of 2013, and there's a reason for that, because it wasn't a conclave, and, you know, it's you, all this, well, woulda, coulda, shoulda, well, what if this had happened? Well, what if that had happened? The divine providence saw to it that all of this happened exactly the way that it has. And do we not believe that the divine providence always is working things for a greater good? How can you at this point not look at this situation and couple that with corona scam and, you know, the church being under global interdict and people lining, literally lining up with all of these um with all of these sodomite criminal churchmen, first among them in bed with the New World Order, lining up for what is probably a suicidal um, injection, you know, the, the, the death jab, the, the, the fake vaccine. All of these men are lining up for that. And you're looking at this and saying, how, how could we have even conceived one year and four months ago today that the entire Novus Ordo Church could be completely cleared out. How, I mean, how could that even be possible? Uh, folks, we're living it. it. It's happening right in front of our faces. The sodomites are clearing out of Rome. I just got word that a, that a major layman sodomite is clearing out of Rome just a couple of days ago. And it's, it's all happening. How do you get it so that all of these people will voluntarily line up and then either leave of their own volition completely go into schism and obviously sever themselves from the church or a hell of a lot of them if we think that this death vax is what it could possibly be hell a non-trivial percentage of all of these people could be dead two years from today it's it's totally conceivably possible how can you at this point second guess the divine providence and not see the potential and the the reality that 
everything is working towards some greater good? How can you look at your own life, and, you know, and your own conversion, reversion, whatever it is, the events of your life, how you met your spouse and ended up having your children that you had, you know, how can you look at these things and not see the action and the work and the love of the divine providence in all of this? Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, one, one of the things that came out in the uh, very clearly in the Stephanie Acosta book is that she has documented from the 2005 conclave, which was a real conclave, she has the scrutinies documented. And what that clearly shows, which is the first time I've ever seen that, you know, beyond rumors of it, she actually has the votes. Benedict in 2013 when he did whatever he thought he was doing, already knew who would be, I'm making air quotes, elected at the 2013 conclave. He knew, because guess what? He was in the 2005 conclave when he was elected, and he knew Bergoglio. Bergoglio, actually, if he had, he was very close to lining up the votes in 2005, maybe not to get elected himself, but to block benedict's election and like i just said that's all laid out in the acosta book god bless her oh, the the other thing i wanted to mention in terms of pastor Eternus, and then we'll turn it over to dr matzah to tell us why we're in a catch-22 but everything about the conferral of the papacy also works in reverse so if there yes. is if there is a true resignation it is Christ himself who accepts that crown back. That's right. And canon law 332.2 reiterates that. Because 332, the last clause of 332.2 is, and it need not be accepted by anyone, meaning a papal, a papal resignation. And that's what that is, is it's pointing back to, guys, it's not the College of Cardinals who decides this. It's not Anne Barnhart who decides this. It's Christ who decides this. The criteria are all laid out so that we can know one way or the other whether or not Christ accept him, accepted a pope's resignation. I mean, he's God isn't a jerk. He's not trying to hide all of this from anyone. It's all laid out. It's in Pastor Eternus. It's in the it's in the 83 code which we're under. It's all right there. He's not, you don't need to have a secret decoder ring. You don't, this is not Gnosticism. This is acknowledging objective reality that's right in front of you because God in his mercy wouldn't have it any other way. If it, if it were so completely difficult and, um, and hidden and weird and sketchy to even know what's going on in terms of these things, how, how would that line up with God being infinitely good? I, that, that makes no sense because that, that wouldn't be. It would be chaotic and it would be almost deceptive in a way. And that, that's not our Lord. And if you have a personal relationship with our Lord on any level, you know that he is infinite goodness. There's no sketchiness, shadiness, deception, trying to trick anybody, try, even, even trying to put you to the test in any way. I mean, it's just, it's right there. Um, the problem is that we have a church 
infiltrated with men who are either not Catholic or men who are just too scared to speak up and say anything, who think that the situation is just all too, is just way too far gone and the only thing we can do is um, play prevent defense and wait for presumably both of them to die or something like that. Not the case. It's right there in front of us. Yeah, I mean, um, let me read Canon that you just quoted, right, that you just brought up. Canon 332.2. And explain why we're not conspiracy theorists here, and this is just plain as day and objective as day, okay? Canon 332.2 says, um, if it happens, this is the English translation, obviously, if it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, it is required for validity that the resignation is made freely and properly manifested but not that it is accepted by anyone and my contribution to today's podcast is to say benedict when you read his writings <laughs> he doesn't agree with canon law's definition of office it let me explain that if we were to read this in the original latin it would say, not office, but it would say munis. If it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his munis, blah, 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 blah. Well, all right. So this is, the, this is the first problem here. The first problem here is that this man, in his declaratio, does not, does not resign the Petrine munis because he doesn't think it's possible. So we, we, there ha we, we, we have to, first of all, point to that. And then try and figure out, well, what does he mean by Munis? And what does the 1983 code mean by Munis? And, and, and that's actually what Stefano Violi is getting at in his 2019 article, um, which I, I don't know if this is the best time to jump into that. But so um, that's the first thing here is that what I've been able to uncover is that what Benedict means by Munis is not what Canon 332.2 or the whole code of Canon law means by Munis. All right, so that's the first problem. But Dr. Matza, Dr. Matza, if he is unsound <laughs> on the question of what the word Munis means, doesn't that mean that he could never be validly uh, elected Pope in the first place? No, what it means is that he's in substantial error. And, and it is completely possible for him to be in substantial error even as the vicar of Christ, because, and how do we know this? Because it's in canon law that a contingency for this happening is in canon law. If it were not possible for the Pope to be in substantial air, wh why, why do these canons exist? Why does 188 exist? And more to the point, why does 332.2 exist if if the Vicar of Christ could literally get on Twitter and say, I'm out, yo, and hit and hit send on Twitter, and is that is that a valid resignation? Well, it's it's whatever it's whatever is in his mind. He can do whatever he wants. Um, no, you can't be the Pope and say, I'm out, yo, and that be a valid resignation. Even if even if you're the Pope, and especially if you're the Pope, I would even take it a step further and say, Go ahead. No, no, you're absolutely right. And, and the fact of the matter, I'll say two things. One, 
it doesn't actually make him a heretic uh, if he is in error on this point, because there are at least like nine or ten different theological grades of, of being wrong about something, and only like the top three involve heresy. Right. Okay, I, yeah. I can, we can throw this into the, into the show notes. But so anybody who would say, well, you're, you're, you're pulling, you're, you're sawing off the branch that you're sitting on by saying he committed substantial error, because that would mean he's not pope because he's a heretic. And then Francis is not pope because he's a heretic. That means that it's a sede vacant is what you're arguing. No, we don't have to say that he's a heretic. And we don't have time to get into the reasons right now. But we can argue that he's an error because... At the very least, what our skeptics have to grant us, our critics have to grant us, is that based on the research that I've uncovered and you've uncovered and Violi has uncovered, uh, we have a problem from the get-go. He doesn't understand Munis the way the canon law does. And what does this mean? It means that, that the, the last phrase here, that it has to be properly manifested, did not happen. It is objectively plain as day the man did not properly manifest his resignation. Period. End of story. Yep. And it's most interesting, and we brought this up before, it's most interesting that the term Munis was inserted into that canon for 1983. It wasn't there in the 1917 code. It just said, if it should happen, that the Roman pontiff should resign. That's all it said. It didn't say yep. his office. Again, divine providence. That, what's up? Divine yep. providence. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And um, anyway, guys, um, I could share a little bit with you from uh, Violi's article because what Violi argues, in essence, is remember, this is the guy who, before anybody else, back in February 2013, pounced on the fact that Benedict did not renounce the Munis. You know, whatever he did, he didn't renounce the Munis. Um, and in this 2019 article, Violi is basically saying that perhaps there is a distinction between the munis that is granted when you are ordained, let's say, versus the office that's conferred on you. I'll quote from his, um, from his essay here. He, he, he talks about how diocesan bishops can retire or resign. Uh, it's Canon 401.1, and he says, Canon 401.1 rightly speaks of renuncio ab officio, not of renunciatio muniri. Uh, the canonical mission entrusted to the bishop, and that goes back to the power of jurisdiction, right, from our earlier discussion, the canonical mission entrusted to a bishop does not, in fact, involve the identification between the sacramental ontological munis and the office conferred on it. Is that clear, or did I just like totally mess up everybody's minds here? Say that last part again. Um, the can the uh, there there is not an identification between the ontological munis and the office conferred on the bishop, which, which is basically going back to what Ratzinger and, and his ilk think, that when you get ordained, that's when you get your sacramental ontological munis, and somehow 
that is a separate thing from the office that's conferred on you by the power of jurisdiction by the church. Does that make sense? Well, it the, the words make sense. Right. Even if the concept doesn't. <laughs> Right. Well, that's obviously, yeah, obviously um, that that's, that's the thing here is, is, is Benedict's understanding of, is his, you know, objective, is the objective truth, uh, is his mind in conformity with the objective truth? Uh, and that's where things get, get dicey here. But um, so Violi is trying to explain why Benedict can claim that he still shares in the Petrine Munis. And yet freely admits that he's given up the, the office of administration or the office of governance. And, and this, is, like, this is just, uh, Violi wrote like 30 pages here. Um, I'm just quoting like one section in particular. But um, Violi wants to make a distinction between the, the office that's given you through the power of jurisdiction and the office or the munis, rather, that's given to you by the power of ordination. Um, and this is actually why I said earlier this, this gets a little bit of a little bit of a catch twenty two here, because the reason why you can lose your office is because it's something that the church gives you, whereas you don't lose your powers that are given to you at ordination because it's God who gives them to you uh, mm. directly, so to speak. Well, I'm trying to get inside the mind of Benedict, and I'm just I'm just talking out loud here. I'm not referring to my article, but. Um, Reflecting on what Violi is saying here, I'm thinking to myself, maybe what Benedict has in his head is that since it's Jesus Christ himself who, you know, may, gave him the moonness of the papacy and not the church, not the, not the cardinal electors, maybe that's why he thinks that it is uh, irrevocable. I mean, uh, Romans, what is it, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, says that the, the gift uh, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Um, that might explain why he thinks and writes and acts and behaves the way he does. Um, I'm just throwing and, that out there. And what would make him think then that his, uh, the conferral of the papacy onto him was of a different ontological nature to previous popes who he apparently believes really did resign because he called Celestine's uh, resignation or form of resignation, something that was, I forget the term, completely inadequate uh, for, for, for Benedict to do something like that, completely inadequate or, um, mm -hmm. and then, you know, went on to call what he did a novelty. Well, how did he think he could pull off a novelty when we're talking about a, a divinely bestowed office. It just, it's, well, I, 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 I think going back to when Dr. Matza opened by quoting um, Ratzinger's 1987 writings, calling things medieval. I, 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 it, I think it might be that he at some point or still does just thinks that what was going on in like Celestine V's time is is just something completely and totally different and you know that that would absolutely square with the mindset of the 20th century and vatican ii 
and you know this is this is a different world these forms it doesn't work anymore everything's different it's not the same but then it's so it's so schizophrenic because he says because he has that beautiful famous quote about the mass saying what was good and good for the church meaning the the venerable gregorian rite of of the mass if that was good before it, it by definition it's still good now so i mean it really is schizophrenic and i right. just keep coming back to this his it it's it smacks to me of of just desperation that he was just desperate to get out of there somehow and again this points to the coercion and the sodomite infiltration and and his despair um that's just where we keep coming back to that he just wanted to get out and he's and he's got himself just tied into some pretzel knot of substantial air just because he wanted to get the hell out of there. Hmm. I mean, he's to your point, he says in 1987, we have to basically admit, right, that distortion and corruption of both church and theology to their innermost core has happened. And he says the separation of office as jurisdiction from office as right was continued for reasons of prestige and financial benefits. I think the most crucial event in the development of the entire Latin West was the increasing distinction between potestas ordinus and jurisdiction or potestas jurisdictionis. Um, so yeah, I think you're right, Anne. I, I, in his mind, somehow, you know, he thinks that Celestine V <laughs> committed substantial error Right somehow, because in the in the Middle Ages they they mixed up the idea of office with the church. Uh, they they took they imported the idea of office from kingship and secular realities and put it on the church and screwed up the theology and screwed up the church. And, and this is this is so ironic <laughs> because I mean the Eastern I, I mean to me he's backhandedly um, you know drawing a comparison contrasting the western church the latin church to the eastern byzantine church the byzantines are i mean it's called caesaropapism you know they're exactly they're, they're exactly. the they're the poster children of all this and he's trying to say almost that the it was the it was the roman western church that's you know were, were the the vanguards of all this um mixing mixing things up like this and it's oh man germans i don't know <laughs> well and he wrote extensively maybe in less in less you know not as much in uh condemnation of of those ideas but uh certainly in uh the book i sent you a few weeks ago dr matza the the primacy and the episcopate where he's mm. arguing, arguing in a book that he literally co-authored with Rahner about the uh, the episcopacy, tr trying to draw a a parallel or a leveling between the episcopate and the primacy, and ideas as far out as uh, the jurisdiction of the papacy really doesn't exist without the pope being in union with the episcopate uh that's backwards that's yeah. completely that upside down backwards. yeah in 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 all fairness i i did read through what you sent me and you know i i kind of 
I have to watch myself that I don't get Stockholm syndrome. I have been reading so much of the Miller dissertation and so much of Rahner and Ratzinger. It sounds like a, a, a vaudeville act from Weimar, <laughs> Germany. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm Scott, forgive me. I didn't mean to be disrespectful. but um, Somebody get the hook, you know, the, the hook that they pull people off the stage with, or the, the clown with the broom at the Apollo Theater and just sweep, sweep them off the stage. Oh my gosh. You know, we're re- we're really not doing any uh help to the to the emails and one and comments that I get that <laughs> you guys sound like you're having so much fun on that podcast. Well, I mean, when you know what the truth I mean, is, you're filled with joy. So what can I tell you? I know. Amen. Um so I, 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 I've been reading so much Nouvelle Theology re- recently that I, I, I literally I I have to be careful I don't get assimilated here, but with all fairness, resistance to... is futile. <laughs> <laughs> I love that reference. Um, with, are you are you going to appear on the next matzah cast and say I am Locutus of Bork? <laughs> <laughs> you will be assimilated. <laughs> Your biological anyway. Um, Your biological right, distinctiveness Mata. will be will be joint powers. <laughs> Okay, nerds. <laughs> oh, it's bad. Uh, um, they, they do admit, and this is why they're. This is why at least Ratzinger is not a heretic. I'm not entirely sure about Rahner, but Ratzinger does admit that it works both ways. Okay, that that the um, the, the bishops need the pope. The pope is the supreme pastor, but he he he, he again his thinking the the way he thinks is so complex or so Byzantine. I don't or serpentine, I don't know what phrase we want to use here, but um, he's still within the realm of orthodoxy for the most part. It just, let's say, it's, it, at the very least, it's offensive to pious ears, but I'm not sure how much more deeper I want to go with that. But the point of it is, I'll, I'll tell you one good thing that came out of the, that, that book that he did with, uh, with Rahner. I think it was from 1962. Uh, is it, what's the title again? Episcopacy and Papacy? Is that it, Mark? Primacy, I think it's primacy, episcopacy. Let me go run and get it. Okay, because in 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 almost the last chapter, I think Rahner actually comes out with something that we should uh, p- post all over the place, and that is he argues that you know that the Pope is not an absolute monarch, and if he were to tell the the Orthodox churches that they have to adopt the Latin Tridentine Mass and change all of their ways of doing things. Um, it might be within the legal bounds of his uh, power, but it would not be morally correct, uh, and according to the Catholic principle of subsidiarity. And I just thought to myself, that's the height of irony, because what happened just seven years later, the Novus Ordo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So... I mean, we can quote their words right back at them uh, to, to, you know, to uh, counter, to have a counter revolution against the revolution. Yeah, episcopate, the episcopate and the primacy is, uh, we can put it in the show notes. Although I'm not sure, you found it online, I think, didn't you? I did, I found it at archive.org. And, um, but but so most of the book is actually by, Rahner, and then there's just a few sections by Ratzinger, but I think 
there's something in the preface that says they both agree to everything that's in the book. But, um, but so again, I've been reading a lot of Ratzinger lately, probably too much. And what he says in 62, he repeats in 87 and then he repeats it partially when he's Pope. Um, but again, it all comes back to Canon 332 and to this notion that the resignation is not valid if it's not properly manifested. And how can it be properly manifested if the person in question doesn't actually agree and is on record as disagreeing with what canon law defines as munis or office? <laughs> It, right. And secondarily, it means that if he has a different idea in his head than what objective reality is, then that means substantial error. And substantial error means he did not resign freely, which is the other half of, of uh, what the canon 332.2 says. So no matter how you square it or multiply it or divide it, it's all there. Consilience, all it all leads to exactly the same thing. I mean, we're back to the original substantial error clause. It, it, the more you research, the more you see, the more you read, the more it just confirms. Everything just keeps leading back to that. History, it's very fascinating um, historically, the coercion question, but the the bread and butter of this thing the meat and potatoes is the substantial error clause and 332 backs it up it's almost as if the the antiquarianism is that the term i'm looking for the the fascination with uh the false idea that uh everything that all the developments uh were bad and we need to get back to the way it was at the beginning which is a position that was i think pius 12 Pius XII condemned. It's almost like he had a whole bunch of that, as did everybody else around in the 60s. But then some of it continued creeping forward. That's sort of what I heard in the 1987 uh, bit that you read. And then, I don't know, maybe he still has some of it. There, there, there's something about the fact that he believes that the papacy that he accepted is different from Celestine's. It just, just blows my mind. Yeah. This is the here's a here's a quote from I'm not sure what this is. This I think this is the 2017 Seawald um, interview. This is Benedict. I had to consider now. Think about what he what, what he's saying here. He's saying that I think he's saying that he has the power to determine the nature of the papacy. I had to consider whether or not functionalism would complete. So here's something that's crept in. I guess would completely encroach on the papacy. Earlier, bishops were not allowed to resign. A number of bishops said, I am a father and that I'll stay because you can't stop. You can't simply stop being a father. Huh. Stopping is a functionalization. um, mm -hmm. Stopping is a functionalization and secularization, something from the sort of concept of public office that shouldn't apply to a bishop. To that, I must reply, even a father's role stops. Of course, a father does not stop being a father, but he is relieved of concrete responsibility. He remains a father in a deep inward sense in a particular relationship, which has responsibility, but not with day-to-day tasks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear that he's been thinking about this for decades. 
so this is the this is the thing for him. I again, I'm, I've been. I think I, I actually I had a dream <laughs> that I met Pope Benedict uh, last week. I think I've been reading about him so much. Um, so here's the here's the deal. Not just in 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 the in the quote you just gave from Seawold, but from sermons that he gave back in the seventies about about the devil and and other things I've read. He doesn't like functionalism. Uh, he doesn't like secularism, and he thinks that the concept of public office, office as power, it's medieval. It's it's a it's it's a, a parasite on the church. It's not the authentic church. And in, in, now he actually criticizes. God bless him. He criticizes Martin Luther. Um, it, it, he says here, Luther for for Luther, the priest does not transcend his role as preacher. The consequent restriction to the word alone had as its logical outcome the pure functionality of the priesthood. It consisted exclusively in a particular activity. If that activity was missing, the ministry itself ceased to exist. There was purposefully no further mention of priesthood, but only of office. The assignment of this office was in itself a secular act, right? But Benedict, he doesn't see the priesthood, or better yet, the papacy, as, quote, consisting exclusively in a particular activity, so that if the activity is missing, the ministry itself ceases to exist. I mean, look at what he said. He said, my decision to resign the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. I am not abandoning the cross. I no longer bear the power of office, power of office for governance, right? The potestas jurisdictionis. But in the service of prayer, I remain, so to speak, in the enclosure of St. Peter. You get the distinction that he makes? Sure. Yeah, it's it's quite clear, actually. It, it's amazing <laughs> that anyone can look at it and read it differently, and yet. And yet, yeah. And, and even Violi, in his uh, article again, just from 2019, he says, according to the magisterium of Pope Benedict, the munis of the Bishop of Rome obtained with the legitimate election accepted by him together with the Episcopal consecration, like the munis of other bishops, entails, quote, an always and a forever. I feel a 1970s song coming on. Oh. Um, <laughs> Um, he says, aware that the that was ontologic the 80s. was that, that the, was the 80s? That was every sure. day. Show me your own special way. All right, uh, uh, I think that might have been my junior prom theme. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. True confessions. Oh, man. <laughs> Let me finish this quote from Violi and then. Uh, aware that the ontological participation in the sacred Munira determines an existential link with the mission entrusted to him, Benedict XVI, in his formal act of renunciation, did not use the ambiguous formula uh, renunciatio munire uh, from the Code of Canon Law 332.2. He stated instead to renounce the ministerium, at this point, the considerations made so far regarding the distinction between munis and office 
reread in the light of the practice adopted by Benedict XVI after the resignation, it seems to me, certify the persistence of the hypostatic and irrevocable link with the munis of Bishop of Rome in the person of the, of the resigning Pope also after the loss of the office of Roman Pontiff. Uh, so Violi seems to agree with Benedict that somehow he still has the munis. Man. Or, or, or that he still has some... He still has some participation at any rate, which, of course, is substantial error. Yeah, I mean, it's, you either are or you aren't, and there's only one. There's only one at a time. I mean, this is, this is, these are diaper school type concepts, you know, and the whole world's just tied in a ginormous granny knot over this. Well, folks, we're at uh, an hour 30. Doc, do you have any last uh, points? Uh, just that... Um... Folks, the information is out there. The truth is out there. Uh, go and research it. Um, you know, but that's it. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And um, we're, we're probably going to have to do another one of these in a couple of weeks because it's just so much information just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming that it just it just doesn't end. And I, I personally want to get as much of this out on the public record as we possibly can. Um, I don't want to I don't want to roll into my particular judgment and have our Lord look down at me and say, you know, you just you just didn't try hard enough. So I think um, there's more to come, folks. Uh, if the truth is worth eighteen dollars to you, buy the Acosta book and the Kindle's probably five dollars. Um, the question of who is the true vicar of Christ is something every soul needs to know, because you can't know who to be in union with if you don't know who the pope is. Yep, and I would also add, and I've been talking to priests about this, that one of the reasons that you have, you've got so many priests, even priests of the SSPX, and reminding everybody, the SSPX, they're not Sedevacantus, they commemorate Francis at every Mass at the Te Igitur. And people are asking, why are these people saying, like, go ahead and take, go ahead and take the death vax, and even if it, even if it's made out of wisdom, murdered babies, well, this is an emergency. Why are these people also blind? Why is everyone going along with this? Why are we in just this absolute state of total global blindness and confusion? And I. I tell priests this at every opportunity. If you're commemorating an anti-pope at the Te Igitur, you are behind the eight ball right out of the chute. Right out of the chute. And this, this situation is not going to start to turn around. And, and it's not going to start to turn around until somehow, some way, we get... All of these ma all these masses that are the ones that are still going on, and a significantly higher percentage of them now are obviously trad masses because Novus Ordo priests, if there's not an audience there for them, then they have no conception of why they should even be, you know, putting on their show, which is their which is their mass. So a lot of masses just aren't being said. This thing will start turning around, and it will start turning around very, very quickly if you can get somehow, some way, <coughs> Cardinal Burke, to um, to get priests commemorating the actual vicar of Christ at the Te Igitur and stop commemorating this anti-pope who is, oh, by the way, also probably the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist. I can, I, I'm no mystic, and I... 
you know, I'm loath to make a definitive de- declaration like this because who am I, you know, but I'm very, very confident that if there was a pivot and people started commemorating the Pope at the Mass again, that lo and behold, things would start loosening up and the Corona scam would start to fall. And maybe we might even get some of these oligarchs and these these arch criminals like Bill and Melinda Gates arrested and Fauci arrested and things like that. And things would start to loosen up. So it's it's important obviously because the vicar of christ is in his person the principle of unity and the standard of schism but it's also important because when you're when you've got the entire planet commemorating the wrong guy i mean what what do you expect is going to come out of that i mean it, you can't just shrug your shoulders and say well it doesn't matter yeah yeah it does matter it matters a lot and the amount of grace that's flowing and is available especially to the priests themselves who are offering those masses um, it, it is linked, and I'm convinced that commemorating the wrong guy, especially in a situation like this, and we're, you know, people say, well, St. Vincent Ferrer, he backed in an, an anti-pope, and he continued to perform miracles while he was backing an anti-pope. Yes, because that was a political question. And he, there, there was, there was, the guy that St. Vincent Ferrer was mistakenly backing was not, you know, getting up and worshiping demons in, inside the Vatican every morning before 9 a.m., you know, it's, it's totally apples and oranges. This situation now with Bergoglio just manifesting all day, every day, what he is and what he is not uh, you can't say that it's the same situation as what St. Vincent, St. Vincent Ferrer experienced because it's not. That was a purely political state of confusion. That's all, that's all that was. Um, that's not what this is. So, you know, we've got to work as hard as we can to get these good priests. I mean, and you know what? I'll even say this. I think that if you could just get priests to stop saying a name at the Tay Igitor, that that would be a step in the right direction. If you're a priest and you genuinely don't know who the Vicar of Christ is, fair enough. How about the Tay Igitor? You just say the Pope and don't say, don't say a name one way or the other. I think our Lord, you know, being that he knows you better than you know yourself and is infinite mercy, that he would totally understand what you were doing and why you were doing it and the motivation for why you're doing it. Um, so, you know, just putting that out there. Well, St. Unipero Serra, um, in one of his letters, he, he writes to Europe and he says, by the way, can you guys tell me who the, who the new pope is so I can mention him in the, in the Tegator? So it means that for, for, for weeks and weeks and months, he wasn't mentioning the Pope, you know, because right. he didn't know, he, he literally didn't, didn't know. He didn't know his name. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Great point. That's a great point. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I, again, I just want to wish, wish, ooh, can't even talk anymore. I uh, <laughs> want to wish Benedetto a very happy 94th uh, birthday tomorrow and a very happy, uh, on Monday, a very happy 16th year of his pontificate. Uninterrupted. I, yep. I, I told Super Nerd that we actually intended for this to post on the 16th anniversary, which is Monday. So that'll be a, a, a nice treat. If he gets to it before then, that's fine, but that's what we're targeting. Cool. Okay. Feedback. The email address for the show, if you have any suggestions, is podcast at barnhart.biz. 
Masses for Anne's benefactors, at least one mass every day, plus one requiem every week for everyone who died in the previous week. It doesn't matter if you died from the flu. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Nobody, <laughs> Nobody dies from the flu anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, either way, a requiem mass is offered for everyone who died the previous week. Please pray for these and all priests. Satan's, Satan's forces are certainly focusing their efforts, their warfare upon the priests right now. But your prayers to God for this intention can help hold back that tide. The Bard Hard Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you got some value out of this or previous podcasts and would like to return some value, please, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more info. Even though he's not on this recording, he spends literally hours processing. Our audio is so messed up. Trust me, he's got to work hard to, to make this thing sound uh, audible, at least. So if it weren't for him, you wouldn't be hearing this right now. Uh, he also keeps Ansight going against all cyber threats foreign and domestic and now Anne does the matthew 1720 y'all know it fourfold intention that bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-pope and the whole thing be nullified that pope benedict ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living pope since april of 2005 that bergoglio repent revert to catholicism die in a state of grace in the fullness of time and someday achieve the beatific vision he could be the um the anti-judas iscariot he which is he's been that's in the news him him trying to canonize judas iscariot um it's it's not that judas iscariot isn't in hell it's just that bergoglio could possibly even as the false prophet forerunner of the antichrist he could unwind that and he could eventually end up being the anti-judas iscariot and be the betrayer that does repent and that pope benedict ratzinger repent of anything that he might need to repent of as you know most human beings do before they die that he die um in a state of grace in the fullness of time and someday achieve the beatific vision nothing less will do our lady undoer of knots pray for us pray for us our lady seat of wisdom pray for us pray for us virgin most powerful pray for us pray for us Mary okay, co-redemptrix, Mary co-redemptrix, <laughs> pray, pray for, for us. us. Pray for us. <laughs> yep. Amen, amen. Okay, well, until next time, I'm Mark. Stay frosty, my friends. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. Bye.